welcome to Second Podcast, a Lord of the Rings series by the Dorky Diva Show. I'm your host, Savannah. And I'm Brian. We are so excited. So excited. I am very excited today (laughs) because today we're going to be talking about the behind the scenes of the Fellowship of the Ring. And I told Brian before we started recording this, I told him yesterday, I said, this episode is going to be called The Fellowship of the Ring Behind the Scenes, a.k.a. A Love Letter to Sir Richard Taylor. Part one. And he said part one, yes. (laughs) So just strap in because we have so much to talk about and I'm very nervous today because this is really my jam like the behind the scenes are my jam and I don't know if you guys noticed hopefully you listened to our previous episode where we talked about the movie but that was Brian's jam (laughs) and I was a little more in the back seat for that episode but for this episode I'm driving and I'm thrilled but I'm also a little overwhelmed because there is so much to talk about. It is inevitable that we will not cover it all, but I'm going to do my best to talk about the things that I love about the making of this movie. And Brian, you have literally no idea what we're talking about today. (laughs) It's true. It's true. As (laughs) usual. As usual. Yeah. I, um, I don't understand the phrase show notes. Um, also, mm-hmm. I, I kind of mentioned it in the last one. I have not like actually looked into the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings that much because uh, I it's the only thing in my life that I'm like this. Uh, I like the magic. I like I like not knowing. Isn't that weird? And like it's just Lord like of the Rings. I feel like this is gonna taint you. I kind of feel bad. No, it's gonna be cool. I'll I guess have it's a more though, appreciation than the behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I love hearing fun facts about it. I'm like, oh, cool. And, like, I do know some of these names, and I, I more than appreciate their work. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited because, like, I've listened to or watched the, like, fun interview back and forth stories of, like, oh, and this person mm-hmm. did this. And, like, you know, the little quips and things. Like, those are always really fun. But as far as, like, mm-hmm. the nitty-gritty, like, all the stuff I know about Star Wars, I do not right. know anywhere near as much for Lord of the Rings. So I'm excited about this. I'm excited too. So basically what I did to like prepare for this episode was I watched all of the appendices for the Fellowship of the Ring. And the first part of the appendices is really about Tolkien himself and the history of the Lord of the Rings and all of that. And to be honest, I've seen that before, but that's not really what I dove into for this episode. I really dove into the part of the appendices where they start talking about making the film. So we might gloss over that a little bit, and it's not really to be disrespectful or ignore that part of the process. It's really just Mm -hmm. there's so much to talk about. And I feel like one day we could do an entirely separate episode just on more more focused on like the books themselves and and how they were written and everything. And this is really just focused on the film. So... Holy moly, we have a lot to get through. I do want to mention really quickly, though. (laughs) I'm just, like, very overwhelmed. I do want to mention very quickly, my mom texted me yesterday and said that a few theaters are playing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the extended editions, in theaters soon. And I wanted to mention that here. I know that going to theaters in person is still a very touchy subject, and, Mm -hmm. you know... 
I totally respect people who aren't going to the theater. I'm not going to the theater right now. Yep. Um, But if you want to go to flashbackcinema.net, you can see the dates where they're showing the movies. You can see what theaters are playing them. And it's all happening in September. So the 5th and the 8th, they are showing The Fellowship of the Ring. On the 12th and the 15th, they're showing The Two Towers. And then on the 19th and the 22nd, they are showing Return of the King. So I just wanted to mention that here because I got really excited about that. And I've never gotten to see these movies in the theaters. So that's true. I I don't think I'll get to see them all, but I am going to make a point to go see at least one. Yeah. And I just don't want to miss this opportunity. So I don't blame you. That was thrilling when I saw that. Get yeah. vaccinated. Go watch the extended editions on mm-hmm. the big screen. Yes, I've never done. and I, I saw I am them vaccinated. in the theatrical versions, but I did not see the extendeds in theaters. Yeah. So I'm excited. That's just so exciting to me to be able to go see those. And like I said, I don't think I'll get to see them all. It's looking like I will be seeing Return of the King, which I am totally Sweet. fine with. Um, so that's exciting. I'll keep you guys posted on that, but. Anyways, just something to look into if you feel comfortable going to a theater and if there's a theater near you that is playing them. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mama Kiefer, for sharing that info. The best. Yay. All right, so let's (laughs) dive in. Let's Um, dive in. Yeah. Brian, I told you before we started, I kind of segmented a lot of these thoughts and fun facts into different, you know, little bits and pieces Mm -hmm. um so we're gonna start by talking about the crew and it is literally impossible to talk about every single person that worked on these movies and this movie in particular Mm -hmm. um without spending like six hours on it and that's what we're gonna do so that's what we're gonna do (laughs) so i wrote down some key people that i think are really important to mention and then we're going to talk a little bit about how the production started so we cannot we cannot go any further without talking about peter jackson correct the director of these films he is Mm -hmm. the captain of the ship and peter jackson was born and raised in new zealand he had directed a handful of films before the lord of the rings and some of his previous films include heavenly creatures brain dead and meet the freebies um i have never watched any of those movies and they're wild i don't think i've seen any of his other movies outside of lord of the rings and The Hobbit, too, because I know he did a remake of King Kong later on. It's I didn't really see good. Ooh, like, really good. Yeah, I'm, mm. I'm Team Jackson's Kong all day. Jack Black's in it, and I'm oh my God, I love a real Jack big Jack Black fan. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. Have you... So when you watched some of his previous films to Lord of the Rings, did you watch those after you had seen Lord of the Rings? So I will admit I did not watch them all because they are very strange. Um, mm. You would never expect um, the the creator of those movies to get Lord of the Rings. And What do you mean by that? Because I have no idea what these movies are. Well, you know what? I don't want to ruin it for you. Okay. I don't, it, I'll just say it's very, very strange. Like mm. weird and kind of art housey. Like... Hmm. It's it's one of those like, how do I even begin? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just need to watch them. Yeah, yeah. Just just give it a shot. Just give which it a ones shot have you seen? 
Well, again, I haven't seen all of them. I've just seen clips. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I have. You know what? Just check out Meet the Freebles. Okay. Just, just, just check it out. Okay. Yeah, it's it's like a there's puppets. There's a bunch of puppets, mm. which is cool. Okay. Yeah. When you but, said you hadn't seen all of them, I thought you meant you hadn't seen all of the movies he had worked on, like every single one. I oh no no no! I have not I seen them you entirely. Meant, like, you have not seen a full film. <laughs> yeah. No, I watched the clips and I was like, I think I'm good. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think I need this one. Well, it's interesting because in the appendices, you kind of see how. He's a little bit scatterbrained, but in a good way. Like, he trusts the people that he has on his team to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. But in his mind, his version of the story is never complete until... Even even not even until they're on set filming. Because I think even when they were on set filming, he would change things in the script and tweak things as they went. Right. And... I think we'll talk about this more when we get into the Hobbit movies, but he really made up a lot of stuff along the way when oh, yeah. he did those movies. Um, and I personally think that worked out well. I know some people disagree with me, but he's just a very interesting person because he's not like very methodically planned out to every little point. You know, he leaves some of it up to chance and just like kind of waits to see what happens. Right. And that would stress me out so much. And I'm not sure if it stressed him out, but he seems to be fine as he goes through it, you know, just like figuring out it out along the way. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he's he's, he's a he's very a interesting person. I, I love yeah. it. He makes his art. And also he loves to really get into the detail. And like he takes his art very seriously, which is one of my favorite things mm-hmm. about Peter Jackson. Like I remember one of the one of the few things I know about the behind the scenes was when he first met with the Weta Workshop people, he essentially mm-hmm. said, we're making a documentary. As yes. if these things had happened in real life with these people, that's the level of care I want with this story. Yeah. And that's why like it's so good. these were real places. Yeah, yes. exactly. So that I I love that. Anyone that puts their me heart too. into their art makes me automatically appreciate it more. Me too. He's a very likable person as well. Like when right? you watch the appendices you're not like oh this guy's weird you're like man he seems so cool i want to hang out with him you know right he just <laughs> he's just really into it and i love that Same. so yeah he's he's the captain of the ship here and then in the shadows is his wife uh her name is fran walsh and she is mm-hmm. not in the appendices at all she's not a public facing person but uh that's his wife and she helped with the screenplay for the movies so she had a huge role in you know, figuring out how to translate the books into a screenplay, what was important to keep, what needed to change, things like that. And it sounds like they both work very well together, but she likes to keep her life very private, which I completely understand. So there's not really a whole lot to like read or see about her, but I couldn't not mention her because she's one of the three people that made the screenplay. Um, and the third person is Philippa Boyens. Oh my God, I love this woman so much. And she <laughs> has been hired to be a consultant for the Lord of the Rings series that Amazon is working on right now. Oh, cool. And I'm really happy that she's involved because she's amazing. And she's in the appendices quite a bit. So she was a screenwriter as well. And prior to working on the films, she was already like a big fan of the books and very familiar with the books. She had read them a bunch of times. So I think it's nice that they had somebody on board that was 
also from New Zealand and also very familiar with the material. And she, I think she is like the main reason why these, um, the story is specifically turned out so well. And when you hear her talk about the pieces she worked on and examples of things that she kind of rewrote to fit this, the movie, you're like, wow, she's a genius. Um, so she's awesome. She also worked on the Hobbit film. So we'll talk about that in a few months when we get to those movies. But she is just such a badass. Like, I'm just going to say it. She is a literal badass. And I think she's so cool. Yeah. Um, so it's neat. You know, out of the three people that worked on the screenplay, two of them were women and... Um, and then there was Peter. So I think that's really cool. I agree. Then we have two artists who are such, um, I don't want to say odd. They're very like eccentric people. I like uh, them. We have, I like them too. I just want them to be like my grandpas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have Alan Lee and John Howe and these two guys were artists that had already worked on a lot of Tolkien work. So they yeah. had illustrated um, things for book covers, calendars, merchandise, things like that. So they were already extremely familiar with Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. had already sort of envisioned what this world looks like and what the characters look like. And they were asked to join the project and really help with honestly everything in the movies from coming up with uh, character concepts to environment concepts, props. They illustrated so many different things and came up with ideas and really like fleshed out what things look look like. And I, I think it's so funny. Um, Peter had sent them each uh, his film, Heavenly Creatures, which like I said, I have not seen. He sent them the film and sent them a letter asking them to work on Lord of the Rings with him. And he said that I think it was I think it was John Howe he said lived pretty remotely somewhere in Europe I can't remember and it took them a while to find where he lived to send him (laughs) this letter and movie and stuff goals they finally found him and they saw when the FedEx package had been signed and they knew that he received it and then they waited by the phone and I guess John had watched the whole movie before he responded back to say yes I'm interested and these two artists had never met each other before in person so they met each other for the first time when they started working on um, the film together and they both went to New Zealand and they were there for basically the entirety of the production so I think that's really cool that they got to like join forces and they had already been doing sort of the same kind of work but they had they didn't even know each other like that's so crazy I love that and it's I also love that they were Tolkien fans before and then they just did the work and their work was really good so it got recognized so when the time came to actually make Tolkien work they their names were in the hat yeah. It's awesome. I, I love that. There's a piece in the appendices where they where they go to the set where they're not the set. It's like the location where they're mm-hmm. building uh, the Shire and Hobbiton and everything. And a lot of things were very rough. It was really just the landscape. And the guys sat there in the in the meadow and drew what they were seeing and drew in like the Hobbit holes and just everything that you would imagine in that landscape and it was just really cool to see them like on video in real time drawing what they imagined this world to look like it just i can't even imagine having that much talent 
Right? Yeah. Oh my god, dude! If I could draw or if I could sing, I would be at a different place. I say that all the time. If I could draw, <laughs> I would be unstoppable. And I say yeah. all the time, I spend so much money on art because yeah. I have so many ideas. Right. That I just can't physically make them happen. For real. Oh, that'd be so. Can you imagine? What a dream. What, what a, a dream. dream. I know. Yeah. I'm so jealous of my brother because he's an artist. And I'm like, man, how did you get all the good art genes? Like, could you just give me half <laughs> of those drawing skills? Like, you don't even need them all. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. But anyways, I'm, I'm Alan Lee and John Howe, we'll probably talk about them a little bit throughout the episode, but cool. they're just awesome. Uh, like next, I have Richard Taylor and Tanya Taylor, and you will be hearing about oh these boy. two for the next four hours. Yeah. Um <laughs> So they both live in New Zealand. They're married, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they had worked on Peter's prior films. Mm-hmm. And they are the uh, founders and creator, creators, I guess, of mm-hmm. Weta Workshop. And we will talk about Weta Workshop a lot in this episode. But basically, Richard and Tanya were responsible for, I would say, all the physical things you see in the in the movies. They are responsible for armor, um, prosthetics, makeup, props, and then they have a a digital team as well that creates all of the CGI elements in the movies. They do so much at What a Workshop, and Mm -hmm. Richard Taylor is, I was texting this to you yesterday, and I meant it, I think he is the most talented person in the world, like at (laughs) anything, not even in this field, like anything ever, he is the most talented because... He's so good at articulating his thoughts when he's on camera and the in the appendices. Mm-hmm. And he's so he's just so well thought out. Like everything he picks up that he's showing to the camera, like a sword or um the hobbit feet or whatever it might be, there's a story behind it. And it's a story that he's created to sure. make these things look so real and every little bit on them has a purpose. And has a backstory. And I'm just like, that's why the design in Lord of the Rings is far more superior than anything else you'll see in film. Because it's real. Like, there's a real purpose behind it. And even the creatures are designed a certain way. Like, I can't remember exactly what he said. But he was talking about the watcher and the water. Like, the octopus kind of thing. Yep. And he was talking about like, oh, yes, there's little hairs on his back. And this is what the hairs do. And I'm just like, nobody can even see these hairs. You know, it's just everything is so detailed. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Everything is so detailed. And he takes it um, so seriously because he cares about the outcome. And I think Mm -hmm. his creative mind to come up with those backstories and purposes and figure out why is this on here or what needs to be added to make it practical it really makes a difference and it it's kind of sad because a lot of the stuff he works on I feel like you can't even see the detail on screen yeah but the fact that it's there it just adds like a whole nother level of quality to what he's doing that's how it works that's how with any sort of like that type of department in a movie like I remember mm-hmm. uh our friend Derek uh him and mm-hmm. our friend Tom were inside the Lugga Beast of episode 7 and you know this like 9 months of R&D on this thing figuring it out weighs hundreds of pounds they f- ship it to the Abu Dhabi desert they're going up and Neil Scanlon wanted 6 seconds of screen time that was the That's goal crazy so almost a year on something that nobody's going to think twice about and he's like I d- give me 6 seconds 
and it will have yeah. been worth it. And same sort of thing. Like you're not looking at the intricate designs of Gimli's axe, but it's there. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. And I think the people that do that sort of work, they're not doing that work to get the credit. They're doing that work because they really believe in what they're doing. And absolutely, I mean, they've got to find joy in making all that stuff. Yeah. There's no reason why you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't be spending so much time on something that you're that the audience isn't even really going to see. But it really does make a difference. Absolutely. And then think about all the work and time and effort that goes into something, and then it doesn't even get used. Yeah. You know, there's so yeah. much in the pre-production phase. We have all these different iterations of this armor and weapons. Like, there's no way they all those designs we see in the movies are the first version of those designs. It's yeah. wild. It's wild. I yeah, love and think artists, about all man. the concepts that get discarded. You know, think yeah. it's probably out of a hundred designs, I would say maybe only ten of them get actually made. Exactly. That might even be a generous estimate. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah. But there's a lot that don't even get to to be on the screen that's right so go out there and yeah. thank thank your local artist friends yeah just go up and seriously. be like you're doing, you're doing a good job i also think it's cool that both uh peter and his wife fran and then richard and tanya were able to work so closely and still like maintain a marriage you know like that's got to be tough right. especially because i'm sure there was a lot of pressure on both of those couples during these productions to do an absolutely phenomenal job Mm -hmm. and there was one part where Richard I think it was Richard it may have been Tanya who said um, there was never a point when they were working on these films where they felt like they couldn't do it or felt like they were in over their heads and I'm like man you have to have an incredible sense of direction and determination not even on your own but as a couple to figure stuff out along the way and make it happen because yeah. the amount of stuff they made, you could easily be crushed by stress and like pressure to, to get everything done and do it right. But I don't yeah. know. They're still married today, so that says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> they must like each other. <laughs> they figured it out. They did something. Yeah. So we love them. We'll be talking about them a lot uh, throughout yeah. the episode. And the last person that I wanted to note, I don't really have a ton to say about him, but his name is Dan Hanna. Mm -hmm. And he is a production designer slash art director, and he's also from New Zealand. So that's also a thing to note about all these people. Pretty much everybody that worked on this film on the crew side, they were all from New Zealand, which is amazing. They're all Kiwis. Um, Because, yeah, and I mean, I don't think a lot of big time movies and stuff had been filmed in New Zealand prior to this. So they were really doing something that was really unprecedented and creating that industry where they lived. Uh, but Dan was responsible for a lot of the environments that we see. And I mean, he honestly had a hand in everything. But as far as making sure things felt cohesive on set, I think that's really what his main job was. And there was um, one thing I can't remember if I have it noted in here to talk about later, but I remember him specifically kind of showing when they found a location for uh, the Shire, it they showed it, you know, when they found it. And then he talked about how he realized they needed to let the grass grow there for like a year and a half. Just the grass. So it would Ooh. get really high and be full and thick and not cut it. And then have the greens department come in there and do flowers and all that stuff. But just that thought alone of like oh yes the grass needs to grow for a year and a half it's like who thinks of that stuff you know I mean obviously it makes sense but 
I don't know, that doesn't really come to mind, especially when you watch the movie. You don't go, wow, that grass is really high. You don't even notice it because it just fits, you know, with the scenery and it just looks right. So I think he's really cool. um, And he's just the greatest. So I'm sure even in the future (laughs) episodes when we talk about the other movies, I think I'll probably have even more to say about him. And rightfully so, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I love I love it. I love the level of thought. I love the level... Like, anyone that's ever worked on a movie set, you realize just how much work goes into even a tiny short film, but something the scale of Lord of the Rings, you know, which they shot at the same time. It's like, this is going to be a decade of your life. Here we go. To have that yeah. sort of foresight to be like, we're going to be doing this in like two years. So let's start growing the grass. Like... But yeah. I don't. Even, I don't even use show notes. I can't even imagine that level of planning. That's yeah. You don't wild. use show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nuts. it's there's just so much planning, and I know that there's a lot of planning that goes into all movies, but this one has got to be like the pinnacle because got to be uh, it's, so much it's, stuff it's was it's made. So many physical things. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so important. That's the other thing. Like to tackle Tolkien is I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. that, it, that it's so, like, revered, you know? It's nuts to yeah. be able to adapt it. You don't want to screw that up. No. And I, I do love that everyone that was involved was such a massive fan of Tolkien before they made the movie. So there's yeah. that respect going into it as well. You know, it's just cool. It's such a neat thing that happened. Like, we talked about yeah. this the other day, how lucky we are that we're alive at a time when <laughs> we can be sharing the same part of the like the planet with these incredible minds it's not like right. oh 300 years ago richard taylor created wet a workshop you're like yeah wet a yeah. workshop's a thing here right now like yeah y- there's we emails could go, we could go there if we wanted to <laughs> yeah it's wild like man are we lucky i love it yeah it's it's so cool So the production of the movie started with the screenplay, obviously. They had to spend a lot of time figuring out how to turn the book into um, a story for the film. And then that's when they got Alan Lee and John Howe on the team to start creating art for all the visuals that needed to be created for the movie. Mm -hmm. And then they went on to casting. And this is pretty crazy to me. I was just doing some last minute research before we started recording today. And Miramax was uh, the first studio on board to finance these movies and everything. And they wanted to tell all of the stories in one film, all three books in one film. And Peter was like, uh, that can't happen. Right. And his original thought was to tell the stories between two films. So oh. he was like, one film isn't going to work. I got to leave Miramax. So he left Miramax and he had a friend uh, named Mark Odesky who worked at New Line Cinema. Mm. And he approached Mark and said, hey, I need to find a new studio. Like this is my one shot to do this. Um, and I need to be able to make it in two films. Mm-hmm. And Mark approached the executives at the studio and they actually came to Peter and said, yes, you need to do this, but you need to do it in three films, which was great because it obviously oh. needed that much time. So they were the ones um, that really pushed him to, if you're going to do it, do it right, sort of, as far as sure. uh, having enough time to tell the stories. So mm-hmm. once he was on board with New Line Cinema, 
that's when they needed to take the original screenplay that they had written to present to Miramax and they had to completely redo it because now it was going to be three films instead of one. So Mm. um, Peter, Fran, Philippa had to like completely... I don't know if they started from scratch, but obviously there's a lot of stuff that needs to be reworked when you go, you know, between that big of a change. So uh, they rewrote the screenplay and they started doing everything. And I thought this was interesting because throughout the appendices, you hear all the actors talking about how they're getting new scripts every day on set, revised scripts. And Marco Desky said that the script was rewritten every week even when they were shooting, and it was rewritten for 15 months. So Goodness gracious. Things, things were get, being tweaked on the fly and being changed. And I think that's really good to note because these days when you have like clickbait headlines and social media talking about movies, um, rewrites and reshoots and things like that are looked upon as a bad thing and a sign that the movie's going to be very bad. <laughs> but obviously in this case, it was a very good thing and they needed to do that. Um, yeah. so I love, I love that it worked out for them because <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's not a bad thing. Anytime I see someone talking about, oh, reshoots are bad. I'm like, you don't know how movies are made. Yeah. Ev- everything. Just, like, stop talking. Is reshot and redone. And like, there's the old saying that a movie is made three times. First, when you write it. Second, when you shoot it. Third, when you edit it. And it's a different movie mm-hmm. every time. And mm-hmm. to have reshoots means that le- at the very least, there's a budget to do the reshoots that's a good thing and reshoots are good as somebody who had to entirely reshoot something yes it and it it is better because there are Mm -hmm. things the need for a reshoot means there was something that wasn't as good as it could be so you reshoot Mm -hmm. it to make it better it's a good thing it's it's wild to me when people are doing that <laughs> i know Uh-oh. i know they're like Ooh, start panicking bad they're yeah, reshooting it be terrible yeah, yeah i hate that wild so, I mean, they, like reshot all of rogue one and look at how great that is like i on. know flawless movie flawless come on now yeah so this script had hands on it pretty yeah. much every day <laughs> every funny. single day um and philippa really emphasizes the fact that There's a lot going on in the Lord of the Rings books that they had to not include. And she explains Mm -hmm. the fact that it's not because it didn't happen in their films. It just happens off screen. And she said they really decided to focus on the story of Frodo and the ring specifically. So if it didn't really have to do with Frodo or the ring, specifically the ring, uh, they decided to leave it out. And I think that's a really good choice because I, you know, Brian, I've been reading The Fellowship of the Ring. I'm still not done with it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of stuff in the book where it's like, oh, I, you know, this didn't happen in the movie, but I completely understand why they didn't include it. It doesn't thrust the story of the ring along. And I just think she did a really good job. Like Tom Bombadil. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think she did a very good job at discerning what was important and what was not important when you have you know only a couple hours to tell a story yeah agreed like less songs less songs god there's so many songs in fellowship of the ring there are it's a a lot and you know what's a bummer is i'm not the kind of person that can read a song and understand what it's supposed to sound like oh sure (laughs) (laughs) i'm just not that kind of person Maybe I'm sure I'm sure fans out there have like actually made the songs a real thing and like sung them. And I need to look those up. Oh, yeah. I feel for it. 
There's there's one song about like the road goes ever on or something like that mm. that Gandalf mm-hmm. and Bilbo sing in the movie that is a song in the book. Lots of songs. Lot, especially I'm, I'm a little the glad room. they didn't include all of those. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> like, oh, another yeah. song. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, mm-hmm. they once they got on board with New Line Cinema, once they had really refined the script to start the production process, then they moved on to storyboards and previs. So mm-hmm. in this period, they were obviously working with hand-drawn storyboards and the previs parts were involving shooting small scenes with people on the crew who were not actors. So Peter jumped in and played a few parts. Um, a couple of the other producers jumped in and played a few parts. And that was really just to get a feel for Um, the scale of the characters. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's a lot of force perspective stuff going on to make Mm -hmm. Gandalf look much bigger than the hobbits and and the dwarves. Um, And they they did all of that with just small cameras and hardly any props just to figure out sort of the feel of, of how things could be shot. So that's really where it started. And that's what I have for this crew section. And next I, I like um, want to talk about the cast. But if there is, is there anything that I miss that you want to mention? Uh, nope. I think you did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> I'm doing a hair flip and you can't see it and I don't have yeah. any hair to flip, but you know. I'm doing it too. And I have shorter hair than you do. On to the next segment. So we're going to be talking about the cast in this segment, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and like tell you who everybody plays. You can just Wikipedia that real quick. Um, <laughs> I'll do it. But give, give me but a character. I, I'll give you the actor. <laughs> Sean Bean. <laughs> yeah, Sean, Sean Bean, Boromir. <laughs> um, so I wrote a lot of little tidbits here and there that they share during the appendices that I just think are so fun. So I'm just going to go through them and... It's just going to be a fun time. Sweet. So Let's do it. We're going to start with um, a not so positive note because many of you heard me say in the last episode that um, Mr. Samwise Gamgee was not my fave character and yeah, I, I attributed it to my lack of appreciation for mr sean astin who plays that character and let me just get this out guys because (sighs) brian was very disappointed in me he's still disappointed in me still still we're just gonna get into it here we go here we go in the in the appendices in Mm -hmm. the bonus features for this movie you've got um elijah wood you've got billy boyd you've you've got dominic monahan and you've got uh vigo mortensen orlando Mm -hmm. bloom they're all such fun and playful guys they are just having a blast you can tell they really connected with each other on set and they just have great personalities and they're always very like positive and you can tell they really appreciate what the crew did for this movie and i don't know i just i don't like this butt coming up they're just very respectful of 
the oh. process and everybody involved and they trust oh all the people that are involved. God. Just digging then this hole have, deeper. Then you have Sean Astin. Yeah. And and listen, you cannot speak because you have not seen these. So be quiet. <laughs> he okay. has a little bit of a self-righteous attitude, in my opinion. Well. And it doesn't come out heavily in this one but i will when we get to the two towers and return of the king i'll have more to say but in this one in particular um elijah wood said that sean astin was like very paranoid about what other people were doing and how they did their job and there Uh was one story where he talked about they were in a helicopter and they needed to land somewhere and sean astin was like freaking out over whether or not the helicopter pilots knew what they were doing and if they <laughs> if they were aware of all the other helicopters around them and Elijah right. and Billy and Dominic were like bro calm down like this is literally their job it's fine sit right. down and be quiet like you're being annoying and mm-hmm. then when they got to their destination uh the other guys are just preparing for the scene kind of goofing off on set killing some time and sean astin is over there trying to help the pilots land the planes Uh uh-huh and it's just like hey man you're (laughs) an actor you need to go sit down and let the experts of the helicopters do what they're doing wow and there was another thing i just have two things to say about him and then i'm gonna move on okay um the second thing is he and we'll get we'll get into this a little later in terms of how long it took to put on the hobbit feet but obviously Mm -hmm. he played a hobbit took a very long time to get those prosthetic feet on Mm -hmm. and he was petty enough to keep track of all the days where they had to stand in the makeup trailers and have their feet put on but their feet never appeared on camera and he made a point (laughs) to tell peter jackson about all those days and no offense, I just think that's really disrespectful. It might be funny to like joke it's about a, it, but you could tell move. you could mm-hmm. tell when he was talking about it that it he was like very put off by it. Uh-huh, and diva uh-huh. is the right word because you know that I am a diva. And <laughs> right. if anyone's going to know what it's like to be a diva, it's me. No, 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 no. First of all, there can't be more than one diva. Like ah, that's why there's a problem. Okay. Um, now we He's now definitely I see a it. diva. And it seems like the other guys were just really good at like going with the flow and mm-hmm. just trusting the people around them. And right. Sean Astin was not about that. So I could go on about this, but I won't. <laughs> and that's you- why that's why I feel differently about Sam than you do. Because when I watched right. these for the first time last year, I watched the movie, the bonus features, and then moved on to the next movie. So by gotcha. the time I got to The Two Towers, I had already seen Sean Astin behind the scenes and felt a little, like, icky about him. Okay, and then it, okay. it a little bit affected my, my view of him throughout the, the next two movies. Gotcha. So There's my explanation. A, is this a territorial thing because he's a control freak and a diva? And you're like, wait, 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 no. wait, wait. Okay, okay. I just, just think sure. if you're going to be an actor, you need to not be a micromanager because well, that's not your job. I mean, if you want to be a producer, right. then you can you can manage people, and that's what that's I would true. Do. Do I wouldn't be an actor; I'd be a producer. <laughs> that, uh, you are. Uh, do you think <laughs> he is that way because he's been an actor his entire life? Because he was know. in the Goonies as a kid, and he's been in yeah, movies ever I don't since. Know. So he's kind of like just trying to be helpful. 
Hmm? I think he needs to be put in his place, though. Oh, my goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. Well? Like, if I was Peter <sighs> Jackson and this guy was telling me about all the days that he had to put on his hobbit feet and didn't have them, like, captured on camera, I'd be like, great, do you want to continue playing this character? Because I can find somebody else. I mean, listen, again, that's that's a that's a power move thing going on. I feel like there's something else here. I don't know what it is, but I feel like there's something under the surface going on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a... I just think in comparison to the other guys in this movie, sure, like I would 100% hang out with Elijah or Billy or Dominic or Vigo. Definitely. I would hang out with any, I would hang out with John Rice Davies. They're chill, fun right. people. And Sean Astin doesn't seem like he'd be a fun person to hang out with because he'd be like paranoid about whatever you're doing. <laughs> so it's just well, a very you know different what? vibe. I, I'm going to hang out with Sean Astin one day and I'll let you know how it goes. All right. I hope you have a terrible time. (laughs) (laughs) See, this sounds a little more personal than it should be. There's something here. I don't know what it is, but I... Okay, but we're going to move on because this is taking up too much time. I just wanted to explain where I'm coming from so that if people Uh were like, uh why doesn't Savannah like Samwise Gamgee? Right. There you go. We're moving on. You don't mind Sam. You just don't like Sean. Yes. I'm going to figure this out. Okay. Well, we're going to move on. I'll get back to you guys. (laughs) Okay, so then we have uh, Billy and Dominic. I just talked about them a little bit. They play Mary and Pippin. They are perfect. Love them. Um, There's so many little clips of them just goofing off, being total hilarious children, Mm -hmm. basically, on set, just being super funny. And I told you this in a text message because I literally could not wait to tell you. But when I was watching the appendices this time around, I was like, I wonder who they're married to. Because I listen to their podcast that they have together. So good. And they talk about their wives a lot. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder who they're married to. And Billy is married to a woman. I don't know if she's an actress, but I, I had never heard of her. And she seems precious and she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know who she was. And then I looked up who Dominic is married to. He is married to Evangeline Lilly who plays Tariel in the Hobbit movies. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about her, you know, in a couple months. But I was just like, what are the odds of that? And you said that they were cast members together on Lost. Lost. And I'd yeah. never seen Lost. But how precious they have that, like, Lord of the Rings world connection. Yeah. Like, that's so cool. Granted, they were in Lost way before the Hobbit movies. And that's, yeah, that's... I get it, yeah. you know. But how cool to be like, oh, well, when I worked on Lord of the Rings, and she can be like, oh, well, when I worked on The Hobbit. Like, what a fun yeah. dinner conversation. <laughs> I wonder if, because Lost had been on for seasons upon seasons by the time The the Hobbit came out, I wonder if Dominic Monaghan ever visited the set of The Hobbit. Because that would be cool. Imagine you're working on The Hobbit, and then Mary walks in. I would love to know that. Right? That'd be neat. We should write into their podcast and ask him. We should. Be like, hey. I'm going to do it. Listen. Answer our question. Or else. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was a very fun little fact. They are adorable together as well. I agree. Next, we're going to talk about my favorite person that I wish was my real friend in real life. Well. Mr. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Vigo Mortensen. Yes. What a what a man. I what love a this man. man as an actor, as a person. It's just Yeah. Great. He's so weird. That's why Don't I like him. Don't you want to be his best friend? I do, but I feel like it would be a lot cuz he's very he's very strange. 
like very oh, out yeah. there, very eccentric. Like that's what I like about him. Yeah, and he's like a rascal. He's great. I, I like I like Vigo yeah. a lot. Yeah. So they had actually started the production for this movie as, with another actor as Aragorn, and oh, I've looked up I who this person is, and I. I can't remember his name, and I didn't write it down. Um, I didn't. I didn't know who he was, but they had started the movie with this other actor, and then they really? realized that they had cast the role too young. Yeah, huh. so they had to find somebody quickly, and they they didn't really explain this a lot in the appendices, but they just said we immediately reached out to Viggo Mortensen. So I don't know if maybe he was on their list of potential people to begin with. Sure. Um, but they reached out to him and they had to persuade him to take the role and they were like, we really need you to give us an answer soon. And he's like, well, how much time do I have? And they were like a couple hours, you know, like not much time because yeah. obviously they had already started production and it was Vigo's 12 year old son, Henry, that said he needed to do it because Henry had read the books and Vigo had never read the books. He had no idea really what the Lord of the Rings was. But his son said he needed to do it. And so he accepted it. And how insane oh, is that? Cool. That this man was literally perfect for this role. And he only accepted the position because, or accepted the role because his son was like, hey, dad, you should do this. Wow. How many dads listen to their 12-year-old son like that? Right. Oh, I see it right here. 27-year-old Irish thespian Stuart Townsend was the, hmm. was the original. And Peter Jackson decided to replace him two days before he was supposed to begin filming. Oh, imagine that. That would suck so bad. Wow. Yeah. Luckily, Vigo I know. What a bummer. And, and the they didn't mention day. his name. Damn. That's usually how it yeah. goes when they have to recast and yeah. stuff like that. That's wild. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, maybe, maybe, maybe Stuart Townsend was like a regular member of society. And they're like, we need someone a little more wild. We need someone yeah. who headbutts. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Vigo's awesome. Vigo's super awesome because he really embodies this character. And yeah. they talk about him in like every segment of the appendices, even really? if it has nothing to do with him. <laughs> He's somehow mentioned because he just embodies this character in so many ways. And there was one part when Richard Taylor was talking about making the swords. He said, oh, yeah, Vigo never went anywhere without a sword. He would even go to dinner with his sword. And that it. was like a way of him embodying this character. And Vigo told this hilarious story about how one day he was like half in regular clothes, half in his Aragorn clothes. And he uh, was rehearsing and then he left rehearsal and started waving a sword around on the streets to try to remember the motions he had just learned for this choreography and the cops got called on him because he's this crazy man <laughs> running around the city with a sword but he literally took it everywhere i guess he drove everywhere with the sword laid in the back seat of his car and yeah he just i he, love it he was he was aragorn when he filmed this movie it wasn't a thing that he turned off right and there was a part that i noticed in the appendices as well they were on location. I can't remember what, what scene they were filming, but they were on location and he was waiting for things to be set up for him to, to go do his scenes. Mm -hmm. And so he just went fishing in the lake in New Zealand, you know, yes. just, just to go this. fish. It's so He's precious. just like in his full get up and everything. He's like, eh, you know, we had, yep. some, had a few minutes. 
I love it. A few minutes, might as well catch some fish, you know, (laughs) just pass the time. He's wild man. That's what it is. He He brings that like wilderness side to Aragorn because Vigo is is that guy. He's such an interesting actor, but he's also like, he's intense. Like I've watched a lot of Vigo stuff, like even his other movies. And I've heard him talk about like his process and everything. And he's very like, (laughs) he was on an actor's round table um, last year, the year before, whatever year Green Book came out. And he pretty much talked about how, as a kid, if somebody told him he couldn't do something, he would do it on purpose. And he's like, I still have that in me. So if someone's like, you can't play that role, that makes me want to play that role, even if it's inappropriate, because I'm just going to yeah. show them. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like Vigo. And like yeah. headbutting everyone and hanging out with the stunt people. and Yes, yeah. he headbutted everybody. Yeah, that's awesome. It's so strange. And that's why I like it. Like, he's such a weirdo. And it's great. Yeah. I feel like we'd get on. I want to have dinner with him. How fun would that be? Right? And he, you know he's awesome. a poet? Like he's written poems and yeah. stuff? Yeah. And he's yeah. a photographer. Like he's so many things. His poems are weird. I've read it. I've, read it <laughs> I've never read them, but I'm not going to. Yeah. I, 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 I don't recommend it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> they're strange. They're not well, Sam, Shep- Sam Shepard strange, but they're strange. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a few other things to say about him, but they kind of go in different segments. So we'll we'll circle back to we'll that in a little bit. All yeah, right. but I just thought it was interesting that they had started with a different actor. They had to get Vigo on board quickly. Yeah, his I didn't know that. very first scene was um, Weathertop. So it was the fight oh. uh, with the with the ring race, and that was literally the That's first thing cool. he ever filmed. Like, think about the pressure with that. Like, you got to know the sword fight and everything, and the level Work of intensity fire. there. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, then we have John Rice Davies, who mm-hmm. I, I have to talk about this story for just a moment. Okay. It showed up on my Facebook memories a couple days ago. I met him, um, I think it was seven years ago at Tampa Bay Comic Con. But at I the time that too. I met him, no way. I was, yeah. I went to his panel. Oh, I didn't go to his panel. It was really good. Dang. Anyway. What if we saw each other there and didn't know each other? That's weird. Probably. Um. But I, I met him because I'm a huge fan of Indiana Jones, and he is yep. Sala in Indiana mm-hmm. Jones. I had no idea who Gimli was. Literally no idea. Oh, yeah. And I got a picture signed by him, and I met him, and he was so sweet, and he talked to me about Sala. And it's just so funny. I was, like, so joyful and excited to meet him, and he was just really sweet. Um, but I had no idea. And now if I were to meet him, I would only want to talk about Gimli. Like I would be like, Sala, fine, like great, but let's talk about Gimli. And yes. so, I don't know. I hope I get to meet him again and like get a picture with him. But I'm sure you will. I just think it's he's hilarious huge. that I had, he's, he's amazing. He's very he's tall. Amazing. I, I, so he, oh, go ahead. I, I always think about him with his panel. He actually would like, it was just him on stage and they had microphones on either end, you know, where people could walk up and ask questions. And what I Mm -hmm. thought was really cool is when somebody would ask a question, he would stand up, walk over to that part of the stage and look the person in the eye as they asked their question and then answer it for everybody else. And then would go back to the, like he was walking back and cross back and forth across the stage. He cares so much. I I loved that. And then a friend of mine, this guy was in a movie with a bunch of years ago. <laughs> he tells a story. He was really excited to talk to him, and he got an autograph, and he was waiting in line. And there was this kid in front of him, and John Reese Davies just like, "Oh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And he's like, "Oh, I want to be an actor." And he goes, "Oh, great! You're gonna love it. It's really, really cool." And then 
my friend goes up there and he does it again. He goes, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my dad's like 20 at the time. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm actually, a, I'm trying to be an actor. <laughs> and John Reese Stevie goes, mm, tough business, tough business. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? You just encouraged this kid. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yes, I think about that he's a lot. He's hilarious. He has a really great YouTube channel that you should check out. Does he? John Reese yeah, Stevie oh, has a man. YouTube channel? We'll get what? into that in a little bit. I didn't know I'll that. tell you about that after the show. Sweet. He, phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Um, but he's, there's so many little interesting stories about him when it comes to this movie. And one of my favorite things is everybody talked about how he had a very different way of rehearsing for fight scenes. And Oh, yeah. He didn't really, nice. didn't really like to <laughs> rehearse. So he'll go, he'll gather around the stunt guys and go, okay, how many of you are there? And who's going to come at me first? And he goes, okay, well, you hit me here and I'll hit you there. And then you come here and then hit me and then I'll hit you here. And he's basically telling them what to do. Yeah. Um, and he did not, he did not like fake hit these people. He actually beat these stuntmen because I'm, Maybe I'm assuming he just like didn't know how to act that out and pretend to hit people. Sure. So he um he battered these stuntmen and really went in there full force to make that it look as real hilarious. as he could. And I think that's so funny. Um, the other thing I have noted for him, and we'll talk about this when we get to the makeup. Um, he obviously had so many facial prosthetics glued to him to look like Gimli, and his face. Uh, reacted so badly to the makeup he was allergic to maybe like the glue i'm assuming right and it would basically peel off yeah it could be the latex Uh. it it would basically peel off his skin and then he'd have like raw skin and his eyes were all like watery and itchy and i just cannot imagine having to sit in a makeup chair for like four hours to know that you are going to be in excruciating pain all day. And a lot of the times it was his his stunt double or scale double um, yeah. doing say, a lot of the work. How often was it him? Yeah, it, it was not him very often because I actually mm-hmm. read an article recently um, from his scale double. And his scale double did a lot of the work. But still, like, think about the um, yeah. the the council scene. So Elijah Wood said they filmed that scene for um, five days. There's a lot of close-ups of Gimli in that scene. And so John probably had to be there every day. Think about having to sit in the makeup chair for that long, just knowing that you're going to be itchy and, and just feeling like garbage all day from this crap that's like glued to your face and right. Richard Taylor specifically said that John Rice Davies was like the most wonderful person to do his makeup because he'd come in every day with his hair pulled back he would be clean shaven he you know he would be ready to go and so I think that says a lot about him like just in the fact that he was probably so miserable but he right. still did it and came to work every day on time and was like prepped and ready to go and not like dragging his feet, dreading this process of getting all this makeup on. Sure. Yeah. But bless his little heart. Bless his little heart. I just heart. can't imagine. I just love him. So he's he's amazing. Uh, he then is. we have uh, Sean Bean, and mm-hmm. this story is my favorite story. So Sean Bean, who plays Boromir, mm-hmm. was really afraid of flying in helicopters, and obviously, to get to a lot of these locations, you had to ride in a helicopter. And I think he did that like once and he was terrified. So every time after that, when they had to get to a location, he would climb 
a mountain and um, make <laughs> his Boromir. own way there to as Bormir in full costume, like he's mm-hmm. dressed and ready to go. And there was one scene, I can't remember which one it was, but he took a ski lift and then he had to climb up a mountain for two hours before <laughs> they started shooting. So think about how early you have to wake up to to wake up early, get your hair and makeup done, get in costume, then get on the ski lift and then climb the mountain for two hours. And then when you're done working all day, you got to climb all the way back down. Oh, um, God. That's desperation. Right yeah. There. <laughs> and he was, he, I mean, bless his heart. I just, I think at some point I would just force myself to suck it up on the helicopter. I don't think yeah. I would want to climb a mountain for two hours. Definitely not. In all that gear. I mean, we're talking layers upon layers upon layers of like thick yeah. fabric and leather armor. And yeah. Yeah. No. Nope. Think about he, how dehydrated <laughs> you would be when you get to the end. I'm sure he carried water with him, but. He must have been sweating so much. Yeah, that's the thing. When you get to set, you're drenched and worn out and tired. Now you got to work. You've already worked the whole day. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. Oof. Uh, but he did it. and He did. Uh, oh, I guess the scene was when he is in the snow and he picks up the ring. Okay. And because I, I remember now Vigo said, oh, you know, he did such a wonderful job in that scene. And he asked Sean Bean like, hey, when you were filming today, were you thinking about having to climb all the way down? And he goes all the time. It's it's what I thought about all day. <laughs> but he was still able to like, you know, perform and do a good job. That's hilarious. Um, so then we have Orlando Bloom and Liv Tyler. I kind of have them paired together because I thought it was really sweet. Liv Tyler said that she felt the need to like really watch over Orlando because he was such a new actor and had never really been on a project this big and he was very young. Mm -hmm. And she felt the need to kind of like watch over him and make sure he was okay and, you know, not let it get to his head too much. And I thought that was sweet. She also said that she didn't want to drive when they were in New Zealand because uh, the you drive obviously on the opposite side of the road and she said that she's a little uh, dyslexic and was scared of doing that so she made Orlando drive her around everywhere when they were there so I guess oh, they had like a awesome. really special like bond a little friendship little elf little elf thing going on little elf thing going on and Orlando Bloom was always telling these funny stories about John Rice Davies I guess they were in a boat one time and the boat capsized and Orlando was blaming it on John and John was blaming it on Orlando and they're in separate interviews, you know? Right. And so they're not like talking to each other. They're just doing their separate interviews and the editor is cutting between them where they're telling conflicting stories. And I think Orlando was on it. I think John was being, you know, a little, (laughs) a little mischievous. I love it. But Orlando had a lot of fun stories to share and it's just uh, crazy to me. Like, so I grew up watching him in, pirates as will turner and he's a little bit older in those movies so it was kind of funny seeing him like so young so young in this movie he's like a little baby i always forget that like because you're you just recently discovered lord of the rings because most people know these actors from lord of the rings and then know them into other stuff but you did it reversed yeah yeah the only actors i had known before this like getting into these movies i knew orlando bloom from a lot of stuff, but mm-hmm. mostly pirates. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew Sean Bean from a bunch of stuff, and I knew yep. John Rice Davies from, um, from Jones. Indiana Jones. Yeah. Huh. And then Christopher Lee. Let's move on to Christopher Lee, Mr. Count Dooku. Christopher Lee. Um, yep. it, the thing I have written down for him, it goes in 
hand in hand with Sir Ian McKellen, Mm -hmm. they just sounded like they respected each other so much. And they just sound like so sweet. And obviously, like, they're older guys and they are theater actors. So they're going to have a lot more in common with each other than obviously, like, the younger guys. Right. Um, But Christopher was already a big uh, fan of the books. He reads the books or read the books at the time every year. So he was very familiar with uh, the material. And I guess he was... um, really involved with contributing on set if things needed to be tweaked he was pretty vocal about how he felt they should be tweaked in the script so i think that's pretty cool and he was the only one that has met tolkien oh i don't know if i knew that yeah christopher lee is the like out of everyone he's including peter jackson like he was the only one that actually met J.R.R. tolkien Mm -hmm. wow i don't think Mm -hmm. i knew that and he he and ian mckellen are both knights they're both sirs crazy Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Crazy. Yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. You that ever heard happens. Christopher Lee's like heavy metal band? No. Oh. What? Oh. oh man. Okay. Yeah. Okay. When we're done, I'm gonna look that up and then I'm gonna show you uh John Rice Davies YouTube channel. And we'll link yeah. them both in our show notes. Yeah. <laughs> like literally toward the end of his life, Christopher Lee was in like a hardcore heavy metal band and he did no the vocals. No way. Yeah, it's no way. Nuts. I can totally see that though. But you know what? I see him. Mm. I see him as Sourman. Yeah, with <laughs> with the long hair, like headbanging. Yeah, no, it's funny. There's pictures of him like doing the horns with his hands, but he's like a super old man. He's like in a library. That is so funny. <laughs> wow, can't yeah, wait to that look guy. that up. Yeah, wow. you're in for a treat. It's actually good too. Like as far as heavy metal goes, it's pretty wild. <laughs> like is that wow. Saruman casting a spell? It's awesome. Dang, I'm pumped. I'm yeah. excited to look that up. It's, it's wild. Uh, the next person I have noted is Ian Holm, and he oh, yeah. plays Bil- Bilbo Baggins. Mm-hmm. And this is something we'll talk about more when we get to the Hobbit movies later on. But I wrote something down here that I thought was really cool. They made a point to talk about how he does every single take so differently. Like every take is just very different in his performance and I remember watching the bonus features for the Hobbit trilogy and Martin Freeman who plays younger Bilbo Baggins was the Mm -hmm. same exact way and they showed examples of his different takes for the same scene and in these appendices they showed Ian Holm doing the same scene in different ways and it's weird and I don't think Martin Freeman did that to be like Ian Holm I think he just did that because that's the kind of actor he is right but how funny that they were both the same playing the same character interesting i i've heard of that before like with continuity you can also give options in the edit so like a lot of times when you're on set you'll do the scene as written and then you'll have a take at the end be like can i try something and a lot of times they'll be able to make a totally different movie depending on the choices that you made so yeah that's wild yeah i thought that was cool uh, and then the last two people I have noted, I don't even have anything written down about them, but it's just uh, <laughs> Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving. <laughs> uh-huh, Can't uh-huh. not mention them. Your two favorites. Um, my two faves. I'm trying to think. I, I'm i trying to think if they had any interviews in the appendices, and they may have, but I think they were probably very short. They're not in the appendices mm-hmm. a ton, which is sure. probably why I don't have a lot noted about them. But um, the appendices focused a lot on The Hobbits, Vigo, the fellowship. Orlando. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So that not a ton with, with Kate and Hugo Weaving. But sure. Love Kate. Hugo Weaving is also great. He just looks like Spock. And 
you know, his character needs to let her daughter live her life. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatevs. Yeah. Whatevs. Had you seen so The Matrix I... prior to Lord of no. the Rings? No. Remember I told you I've never seen those. Okay. And you still haven't. I need to watch them. No, not yet. Right. I'll get okay. to those. I promise. Okay. I would love okay. to watch them. They're, re- they're really good. And they hold up. Yeah. Okay. okay. I'll check okay. them out. Uh, so that's what I have for our cast segment. Is there anybody else that you want to talk about? Um, uh, That's a great question that I'm entirely unprepared for. No. You know what? Yes. Uh, Lawrence McCoye, who played Lurtz. How awesome oh, was that? Oh, yes. What a babe. Oof. He's cute. Oof. Man. That's it. And also, Sala Baker was Sauron. He was in the suit. And I think he mm-hmm. probably played some of the Urukai as well. But he is in yeah. literally everything. That's who I'm thinking of. Sala Baker is the Sala Baker? I don't know the oh, yeah. guy you mentioned. I think I had them confused. Yeah. Lawrence McCoy is... Uh, yeah. He's the one that faces off against Aragorn. You know, the scary one. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then Sala Baker was in the suit as Sauron in the flashback and a bunch of other things. Um, Interesting. Sala Baker is the one that headbutts with Vigo all the time. Yes. He's the one that there's uh, there's a behind-the-scenes story where Vigo told Sala to headbutt Orlando. Yeah. And he's like, just and go over there. he got his just, head just, just red. Just yeah. It's like there's a, just a red dot in the middle of his forehead. He's like, oh, hey, Orlando. Kunk. He just sees lights. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were yeah. on set for that, too. Yeah, it makes it. Oh, yeah, because he mentioned that the elf makeup. The that makeup he had. team probably, yeah. Yeah. They did that. <laughs> but they also did that a lot of the premiere, which is funny. Yep. I love it. Oh, man. I That must be for one of the later movies because I remember those stories, but they were not in the appendices that I watched for this one. So I gotcha. wonder if it's like the okay. next one or something. Possible. But yeah, Possible. they're hilarious. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about the scale doubles in a little bit, too. So Sweet. I don't want to forget them. We'll talk okay. about them a little later. We're going to move on to Weta Workshop. Weta Workshop. Weta Workshop was kind of like visiting some wild fantasy land. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory without the candy. I went to the Weta Workshop, which is quite unlike anything I've ever seen in my entire career. And they made everything you see in the film. They made all the armor all the weapons. Richard Taylor, man in charge. I think he's a genius. We're going to start with makeup and prosthetics. Mm -hmm. I have so many, so many (laughs) notes on this. Just like fun facts. Um, Let's do it. So obviously the hobbits had to wear um, fake feet, fake Mm -hmm. ears. They Mm -hmm. had wigs. Um, So many people in these movies had to have prosthetics applied to their face or whatever it may be. Right. And Tanya Taylor talked about the latex a lot that they used to create these um, pieces. And the Urukai obviously had full masks. Mm -hmm. They created masks for the scale doubles. Just so much stuff was made out of latex. Right. And they said that the foam latex ovens that they used to make everything ran every single day for three and a half years. They never turned off for three and a half years. And that was mostly due to all the Hobbit feet that had to be made and the Urukai armor. Because for those of you who don't know, latex is, is just, it's kind of like a one-time use thing. I think they were able to reuse the Urukai armor a couple times, but Mm -hmm. 
the hobbit feet it was like a one-time use you put them on and then they get discarded at the end of the day um so they had to make a ton of everything and every piece had to be painted um and the suits just wore out very quickly for uh the urukai and yeah every single day for three and a half years i should have calculated how many days that is but it's i mean obviously close to a lot maybe over a thousand days yeah three, uh, six, that's nine, a ton definitely over a thousand definitely over a thousand days um and the makeup and prosthetics department also included uh like painting of the face like makeup and stuff right. uh, wigs contacts teeth and then the actual applications of prosthetics so there's a lot involved here um one thing that i thought was nuts is that and i, I could be a little wrong about this so i'm going to share a number here i'm not sure if this number was for all three movies or just the fellowship if i had to guess i would say all three movies because they made them all kind of at the same time right but uh richard and tanya said that they made 1800 hobbit feet for just the four actors so that doesn't include the hobbits that you see in the beginning of the fellowship that's just for elijah sean billy and dominic 1800 hobbit feet that's 450 per isn't that crazy that's that's crazy yeah nuts yeah they also said for all three films they made over ten thousand facial appliances so that's you know noses things like that right and 1800 body suits and the body suits are for um you know like the urukai right things like that uh 1800 that's so many so earlier i talked about the hobbit feet and how long it took them to put the hobbit feet on Mm -hmm. it took them a couple hours to put on the hobbit feet every day so the actors that played the hobbits had to wake up pretty early because they had a much earlier call time just to have those put on right and the downside was that they had to stand the entire time they were having their feet applied so it's like a rubber you know latex foot and they have to like glue the foot to their physical foot blend the seam around their ankle paint the seam around their ankle and make it all look um seamless so it took a couple hours to do that they had to stand the entire time probably at like four or five in the morning um and they had to do that because if they were sitting the seam just like wasn't right you know they had to be standing in order for it to apply correctly so that sucks and that's why this is why sean Sean was not a happy man (laughs) but you know Billy, Dominic, um, Elijah, they were jamming out the music and drinking coffee and writing in their diaries. Mm -hmm. They literally had diaries um, (laughs) while they were having their feet put on. So, yeah. And then they had to have their ears glued on every day. And this was one interesting thing that Sean Astin had to share. He said that the uh, Hobbit ears were kind of difficult to wear every day because they absorbed sound. And I was like, oh, oh, no, didn't even think about that because it's covering their entire ear. Right. And yeah, obviously, like something like that is going to absorb sound. So he said they kind of had a difficult time hearing people on set. So I feel for him on that one. That would suck. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then other like makeup and prosthetics included Gandalf's uh, nose. So mm-hmm. Ian McKellen said that he already has a pretty big nose, but once the hat is on and the wig is on, his own nose was like kind of getting lost. Mm-hmm. So they they made him a fake one to kind of exaggerate his features and 
obviously that had to be put on every day. And then you've got John Rice Davies. We already talked about him. Mm-hmm. And it took him four and a half hours to get his makeup done. Goodness gracious. That's a lot. A long That's time. That's a lot. Yeah. And then you've got the wigs and everything. I mean, that whole process is all included. But I want to do lot. that one day. I've never worn I think that'd be so fun. Yeah. I think that'd be so fun. Tori, if you're listening, let's figure this out. Oh, yeah. She'll just, let's just go over to her house one day and just like become aliens. <laughs> Done. Yes, please. I want to try spend a it. weekend becoming aliens. I think it'd be so cool. I think so too. I did a, I, um, it wasn't like a job or anything. I just did it for fun. But one time my friend Wes, he was interning for a studio that does a lot of uh, prosthetic makeup mm-hmm. and they needed to use him as a model for uh, like a demo at a trade show. And so I went with him to like take photos and stuff and they put, you know, the facial appliances on him. It took hours Yeah, and they made him just into some random creature. But they they did the facial prosthetics. They did the makeup. I think he put contacts in. They put a wig on him. And that was really cool to see in real time of, like, how long it took to do everything. And just, I mean, the airbrushing alone takes forever. Yeah. So I can't even imagine, wild. like, how long that took them to do for a lot of these characters. Yeah. With so any much. sort of, like, appliance. It took an hour just to make me look dirty in blisters. <laughs> an yeah. hour. Like what? Yeah. And all those appliances are one-time use. Feet, uh, noses, so ears. Use them one day, then you throw them away. Wow. That's yeah. Tanya Tanya Taylor said that she could not fathom the amount of latex that they used on the movies. I would love to know exactly how many gallons they used. How many gallons of latex? A lot. It's not a number. Yeah. It's just a lot. Yeah, it's a ton. So now wow. we're going to move on to weapons and armor. Yeah, yeah. My note that I wrote down for the beginning of this, I've already said, Richard Taylor creates a story for, in all caps, every single thing. <laughs> so in this part of the appendices, he kind of walks you through a couple of the swords that were made, a couple of the suits of armor, and he's telling you the story of all these things. And it's just like, how does your brain work like this? And one thing that I thought was really cool, he said the Urukai had no armor on their backs because they would never turn around and run from a battle. Like as creatures, that's not in their nature to do that because they are warriors and they would never turn around and run from a battle. So they don't even put armor on their backs because they don't need it. That's cool. Is that crazy? That's cool. That's the kind of stuff his brain comes up with. I like it. I want to be his friend too. Uh, so the the armor department made stuff out of metal, leather, steel, all kinds of different materials. A lot of the stuff was traditionally made. Um, so it's neat in parts of the videos they show them kind of like blacksmithing, all sorts of different things. And one one note that I wanted to talk about was the fact that back then, 3D printing was not a thing. And in these days, uh, 3D printing, injection molding, all that stuff is so widely used for films because you can easily print a prototype, you know, in a day, finish it, and then mass produce it. And that saves so much time, saves so much money. Right. And 
they didn't have that back then. If they did, if 3D printing was a thing, which I don't think it was, it was definitely not widely used. It was definitely not affordable. So they made so many things um, with like traditional methods. And I think that's so cool and it really shows, and it's perfect for this sort of um, franchise because everything has to look handmade and lived in. Whereas in Star Wars, like you've got stormtroopers that need to look very sleek and almost futuristic. Right. And, uniform. You know, like, uh, f- yeah, uniform. And first order stormtroopers come to mind. They look flawless. Mm-hmm. But obviously, if you've got, um, you know, elves and dwarves and different, you know, characters and races like that. They're all making their own stuff in this world. So right. it's cool that like real people physically made everything. Um, and then there was one thing that they talk about a lot, and that is the chain mail. So a lot of the characters wore chain mail. Mm-hmm. And back then, any film productions that made chain mail used real chain mail. And it was extremely right. heavy, extremely heavy and cumbersome for actors to wear. So they wanted to figure out a way to improve that. And I think this is one of the biggest innovations that Weta is responsible for when it comes to like physical props and stuff. They figured out how to make chain mail from PVC plastic. So they made little plastic rings and they would be hand looped together. And they said that it took 13,000 rings to make one suit and it took a guy three days to tie them all together to make one suit. Goodness gracious. 13,000 rings. So then they said it took uh, to make all the all the chain mail for the movies. Again, I don't know if it was for this movie specifically or for the whole trilogy. Either way, it's crazy. 2.5 million PVC plastic rings. 2.5 million. That is insane. I know. It's so many. And I, when they said it took three days for one person to make one suit, my brain (laughs) immediately went to when I was lacing up all the leather rectangles for my Zam Wessel skirt because my hands really hurt. I could only do, it got to a point where I could only (laughs) do like two columns a night. There were uh, 16 total columns because my hands would hurt so much from just trying to like grip the, um, the lacing and pull it through and, and putting all those little rings together is even more meticulous and just like delicate than what I was doing because the rings are so much smaller and I can't imagine how much that person's hands must have been hurting. That's a lot. I think there were a couple people working on those, but still, I mean, you put one suit together, you're done for a year. You're ready to like never use your hands ever again. Yeah, for real. I wonder if there's easier ways to do that now. Oh, I'm sure there know, are. Because sure I know are. that, like, we talked about the Hobbit feet. By the time they got to the Hobbit movies, they were like slippers. Yeah. They just slip them on. Yeah. So I wonder if there's, I wonder if Weta figured out a way to, like, quickly do, like, chainmail and costumes and armor. Oh, I'm sure there like are. Like molds, you know? Especially now with all the different machinery and stuff. I mean, I feel like right. you could cut, you could even cut those rings with, like, a CNC machine. Whereas back then, right. I don't know if they were hand cutting pipes individually i have no idea but that's why it's a lot but back then that was such a big deal that had never been done before and it really improved the way 
how long the actors could work and the way they acted because it was so much lighter and easier to wear. I mean, yeah, it was still definitely. probably heavy, but not as heavy as wearing actual chainmail. And it was Have probably you worn cheaper. Chain mail before? Have I? Yeah. No. It's super heavy. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do that. Heck no. Super no. heavy. Monique and I have both tried it on before. Monique oh, really? got her hair caught in one. Where yeah. did you do that? Uh, the Naples Museum. I had a media company a while back and I used to work with them a lot. And oh. one of the guys there had like an actual set of chain mail and we got to try it on. That's cool. No, I've never. It's super heavy. Never done that. <laughs> and I don't ever want to get my hair caught in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were like, oh, no. Like one of the one of the links caught our hair. We're like, Ooh. oh, no. Ow. <laughs> That's very, yeah. very heavy. 2.5 million plastic rings. Insane. Sheesh. Insane. Uh, the next thing that I want to talk about are the swords. It's so incredible to see how these are made because they're real weapons. They were, they're made to be real swords. And obviously they have stunt versions and those might be made out of rubber or whatever. But every sword mm-hmm. that they made, there's a hero version for close-ups and things like that. And there was a yep. part where Richard Taylor was talking about how they have to be perfectly balanced. And he just yep. throws it on his pointer finger. Not even his whole hand. He just throws this sword on his pointer finger and shows how the the handle or the hilt is perfectly balanced with the blade. And that just really impressed me. Like, I know they have to be made that way. But the fact that it was balanced so quickly and perfectly when he rested it on his finger, I was like, wow, that's precision right there and yeah that's cool one thing that goes back to Vigo again and his love for his sword is that he always chose to use his hero sword which was much heavier and typically you would only use those for close-ups and you would use a lighter version for wide shots but he wanted to use the real one all the time so that it actually physically made him tired so that he could you know more easily portray what it would be like to be in a real battle. And I'm just like, this dude is just on another level. He also asked the team for a sharpening stone so that he could sharpen his own blade. And he asked for a dagger to be used as an eating knife. And he goes, yeah, because you wouldn't use a sword to eat. And so he's like, I need a dagger so that I can eat. And he uses it in the movie. And yeah, yeah, yeah. like this man, his mind. <laughs> it's See, just that's amazing. that's another thing because he's Vigo. Normally they'd be like, um, do not give the actor a live blade. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They'll cut themselves. We'll be out of production for three weeks. Just, yeah. No, you don't, you don't get the sharp ones. <laughs> right. I just thought that was so I cool. I am obs- obsessed with Lord of the Rings swords. I yeah. have been like my entire life. They're so cool. They're beautiful. It's like one of my dream items is to have like a, a exact replica of Andoril on my wall. Is that so his cool. sword? That's the sword that Narsil gets reforged into oh, in Return okay. of the King. Okay. See, I'm not yeah. familiar his with sword, all his sword his his regular one, to my knowledge, doesn't have one. It's just the sword of Strider. Hmm. And then Narsil was the blade that was broken. Narsil gets reforged into Andoril. I remember um, the fun for, fact you told me last time it's uh huh. Oh shoot! Now I forgot. Hathafeng <laughs> is Arwen's Hadha, sword. Hathafeng. Uh huh. Okay, I was close. And then Frodo's sword is Sting. Sting. I knew that. Um, uh, uh Gandalf's sword is Glamdring. Mm, I knew that. I don't think I could recall mm-hmm. that, but I did know that. 
Yep, not all not all the swords have names. So like Sam's doesn't, to my knowledge, Boromir's doesn't either. Legolas mm-hmm. has those two knives. Gimli mm-hmm. has his axes. Um, Merry and Pippin just have random swords that were given to them. Mm-hmm. Um, Theoden's is Harrigrim. Wow. Yeah. They're I, all such I'm beautiful a, a names. Big fan. They are. And I'm sure they have like actual meanings. Like I know Andoril means flame of the West. Mm. Or they just call it the Andoril, the flame of the West. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I love that idea. That was something that like Game of Thrones did really well. And like katanas and old school like samurai lore was swords were like uh heirlooms like passed down been in your family for forever mm. you know that's why it was such a big deal that aragorn gets Andoril because right. he is isildur's heir right. so that sword has been in the family for j- thousands of years right so that was why only aragorn could wield it and that's ah. why when he made the pact later on that's why it worked because he was actually isildur's heir if anyone else had that sword it would not have had the same effect got it pretty cool that is very Thorin, cool Thor, Thorin's sword is Orchrist mm. it's another one that's named yeah pretty cool I, and I, they're just I love beautiful these weapons. are truly works of art gorgeous yeah. gorgeous I love I'll it I'll definitely go through and like get some pictures of all of them and post them on our Instagram and share yes. our favorite swords because they're all very cool uh, the yeah. last thing I have noted for this section is that they made over 10,000 arrows because obviously oh, that's cool. characters with arrows that that's a lot. Yeah. A Wild. A lot. So, um, yeah. I mean, the, the weapons and armor, you could do a whole separate episode just on those because you could really get into all the little minute details, especially in the armor. But the thing that astounded me the most was just the time it took to make all of these things, the detail, and how they were able to innovate the chainmail to make that better than it had been in the past and Mm -hmm. how everything was truly made like traditionally that's amazing and those swords are just stunning stunning i want one they really are it's like you mentioned before where like everything has like purpose and like things are reflective of the people who made them yeah so you've got like you know the rohan swords um they have horses on them so, like, mm-hmm. if you look really close at Theoden's sword, it's got two horse heads. Yeah. Um, pretty cool. Pretty yeah. cool. I like I like that a lot. I think in the next behind-the-scenes episode when we're talking about the two towers, we could get into more of that stuff because we won't need to cover all these, like, fun facts again. I think we can kind of dive more into those sorts of details that really tie in with the story because I think that stuff is really interesting as well. So yeah, we'll, same. we'll definitely talk about that in a later episode. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to mention, it's very short, is uh, miniatures and, as Sir Richard Taylor says, bigotches. That's not a good. That's not a good accent. I, I can't even it's do it. It's pretty close. I love the way he says it though. Bigotches. Um, I, I love how he talks. Bigotures it's very are bigotures is a is a term coined by what a workshop, and they are basically miniatures awesome. used to you know drop into backgrounds and whatnot of scenes and obviously they're focal mm-hmm. points of scenes as well but these are miniatures that are huge because they in real life would be so big and if you made them too small as a miniature when you're doing those close-up shots they wouldn't have the the level of detail that you need to show up on screen so They've got, right. uh, you know, miniatures, which are very small scale, and those are used for wide shots and stuff. But for close-ups, they've got the bigatures that could be 
who knows, 20, 20 feet high, I'm, I'm assuming some of these would be. Um, sure. They're huge and they're amazing. And I don't really have any like fun facts on here about the miniatures and bigatures, but it's... Is that they're cool? They're just really cool. And, and a lot of the things around this time, especially with the prequels, which we'll talk about in a minute, a lot of things were being made uh, digitally in computers and they were being paired with real um, miniatures that they could Mm -hmm. kind of splice together. And I think these movies are a really good example of how those things can live together in the same space, like a a CGI environment with a real um, miniature of a ruins or a castle or whatever it may be. I think they did a very good job with that. Uh, But it's just really cool to see in the behind the scenes how large some of these bigotures are and all of the little details that are on them. It's just so cool. And everything has to be made to look very old and weathered and like it's been there for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I think that's really neat. And they showed, I can't remember her name. I'd have to go back and find what her name was, but uh, a woman that worked on a lot of these models and miniatures and they showed her weathering things and pieces of foam to look like stone and I'm just like, oh. how do you do that? That's amazing. You know, it's just the level of talent in these movies. I'm like, how did you find all of these people in New Zealand? How are there this many right. talented <laughs> people in New Zealand? I just, I Kiwis don't understand. <laughs> I want to be one. They're all artisans. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's a uh, pretty much, oh no, wait, I have one more thing. The costumes. I had ooh, that in ooh, a different sweet. section, but I want to talk about that before we move on to digital. Nyla Dixon, who's uh, our costume designer, did it, an incredible job. We set up a, uh, a sewing room for her at Stone Street Studios, which used to be an old paint factory. And uh, she had her 40 seamstresses working in there, creating over 19,000 costumes. And it's not merely creating costumes. Um, that's far too easy a concept than what she actually had to tackle. The costume designer for the trilogy, her name is Nyla Dixon, and she's a very soft-spoken woman. And she said it took her about three months to even understand the enormity of this project and understand actually how many costumes had to be made. And I wrote something down that really blew my mind. She said that once she sat down and went through the screenplay and figured out all the costumes that needed to be made, she realized that a lot of the characters needed many different costumes. So each character, let's let's go with Frodo for an example. Frodo, okay. for Elijah, had to have 10 costumes because obviously over the course of 15 months, those outfits are going to need to be weathered or they might wear out. And, you know, you need multiple sets for multiple reasons. So he's he's got right. 10 costumes just for himself. It's the same outfit, but he needs 10 copies of it. Then his scale double also needs 10 copies of the same outfit. Then uh, his body double needs 10 copies of the same outfit. Then his stunt double needs 10 copies of the same outfit. So total, you are making 40 of the exact same costume in different sizes, obviously, because the scale doubles need smaller costumes. But essentially, 40 of the same thing just for one character. 
That's just for Frodo. You got to do the same. You got to do the same for all the other hobbits. You got to do the same for Gandalf. You've got to do the same for um, just everybody. Everybody, honestly. That's insane. That's so nuts. That's so many. And they showed this. I wonder what the cost was. (laughs) I would love to know that. And they showed her workshop. And I would say she had maybe 10 people or less working on all of these. And they have a, Mm -hmm. a picture of of the wardrobe room and it's just it's just like so deep and there's so many garment bags and I just can't imagine making that many things especially over and over and over you think of a costume like oh yeah you've got Mary and Pippin and Frodo but when she talked about the the 40 number for each character that really blew my mind yeah crazy and then she also said it was her job to take the the original illustrations from john howe and alan lee from when they were illustrating book covers and things like that she said that their illustrations really just suggested the idea of an outfit rather than saying exactly what it was so and when she says that i picture there was a silhouette of an outfit. There was probably a color palette for an outfit. But there wasn't uh, small details, buckles, belts, fabric choices, obviously, because it's just an illustration for a book. And I'm sure right. as as John Howe and Alan Lee got involved in the production, they probably helped her figure out those exact details. But I really think that was a lot on her shoulders to figure that out. And they could make it come to life if she needed to, but... That's a lot of work for all the characters, especially the characters like Boromir and Aragorn that have a lot more going on with what they're wearing. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. It's crazy. That's, that's why they needed all that prep time. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. to make just to make clothes. Yeah, and figure out exactly wow. what everything was going to look like. Um, I have another Vigo fact. Are you ready? Okay, give it to me. Vigo was so into embodying his character that he wanted to do all of his own repairs on his costume so that it looked like if Aragorn was out and something got ripped, he fixed it on the go, you know? So, yeah, he fixed things himself along the way, and they showed him on set. I'm not sure what part of the costume it was, but it showed him, like, tying stuff together and repairing his costume. Huh. I wonder how wardrobe felt about that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure they I'm sure they helped and you know chimed in and, and also did repairs but for him to think of that and think what would this character actually do he'd fix his own stuff he's yeah. not he doesn't have time to go see a seamstress he's in middle earth you know right so I, I that love that cool. yeah. I love that he had the freedom to do those things because a lot yeah. of time it's like if something rips it's like don't move let the professionals right. get in there and they will mend it really quick and he's right. like no <laughs> I'm sure there were instances of that as well but yeah, just the sure. the idea he had a lot of, of freedom. doing that. Yeah. And he thought that cool. deeply into the character to really understand every facet of that character's life. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Um, he does so that's, work. He did. And, and Nyla Dixon did a wonderful job. She did such a great job mm-hmm. with all the costumes. There's a few costumes in the later movies that I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about. I'm so excited to get to those. Yeah. <laughs> um, so next I want to talk about Weta Digital. The genesis of Weta Digital was Heavenly Creatures. Peter Jackson um, was working on that film. It would be 1993, 1994. One of uh, 
Peter's associates at the time, a gentleman named George Port, did some investigation into the cost of digital visual effects and went to Peter and, in a very Kiwi fashion, uh, said, well, we don't really have to pay for these visual effects elsewhere. We'll just do this stuff ourselves. We'll buy a couple of pieces of equipment and uh, do the effects ourselves. And so they went out and bought an SGI workstation and a couple of pieces of software. They bought a film scanner, a film recorder, and bang, your visual effects facility. Like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, these movies were being made around the same time of the prequels, and... It sounded like during the production, Rick McCallum actually came out and took a look at what they were doing. And if you're not a Star Uh Wars person, uh, Rick McCallum worked on the prequels and was very involved in in the production of those movies. And so he came out to see what what a digital was doing. And then uh, Peter Jackson and a couple of the other people from uh, Weta went out to see what Uh, George Lucas and Rick McCallum were doing at Skywalker Ranch for the prequels and they kind of learned a little bit from each other and it sounded like uh, Peter Jackson and his team really learned a lot about digital previs from uh, Rick McCallum and George and everything that they were doing at Skywalker Ranch. I thought that was really cool um, that they were friendly enough to not be like oh well we're competing with you or whatever. Um, but just be like, hey, right. this is how we're doing it, and hey, oh, this is what we've done, and this is better, and let's learn from each other and make this a much smoother and more efficient process. So I thought that was really neat. I agree. Makes yeah. total sense. We've yeah. talked about, you know, the reason we got Gollum is because of Jar Jar. <laughs> yeah. And it it's, was around that time. It's so funny. There's a part in the appendices where George goes, Gollum is going to be bigger than Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Yeah. I just think that's great. He was right. <laughs> he was right. But it all started with Jar Jar. That's right. He's yeah. in the code. Yeah. I love it. So a lot of the environments were made digitally. Uh, one example is Moria. So I talked earlier about how like the Shire mm-hmm. and stuff, that's a practical location and, and everything there is real. Uh, but obviously there were some places that they wanted to show in the movie that couldn't be replicated Uh, within a budget Um, so they built a lot of the environments in the computer and one of the things that I think is really cool is that they would make actual maquettes of sets or characters whatever it may be and they would scan them and then they would put them in the computer to fit them into what was going on and one example of this was the the cave troll so they made a very large maquette of the cave troll and they painted it they made it perfect they made it look real and then the digital team scanned it in and obviously put it in their computers and then from there they animated it to move and and all the things it needed to do but it started Mm -hmm. with a physical prop so they did that with a lot of the you know miniatures bigatures Things like that. And I think that's really cool. So it didn't start in the computer. It started in reality and then made its way into the computer to be um, digitized, I guess. So that's pretty cool. And then the last thing, the last thing I have noted was another big innovation from Weta. And this is something that my husband talks about a lot. He loves Lord of the Rings and really loved it when they came out because he said there were no other movies or TV or whatever at the time that had such large-scale battles and things that felt as big as they appear on screen for these movies. And that is due to a process that Weta Digital created. I don't have the actual name of it, but... 
basically they created these autonomous characters in the computer that could think and choose what they were going to do. So rather than choosing to um, create an entire crowd, the team at What a Digital created these things that they called agents, and they were individual people. And the way that those characters interacted with each other was based on AI. And if they mm-hmm. were walking around a, a field and they came upon a tree, they would turn around and go around the tree or whatever because they had the technology figured out to make them think, essentially. It's hard to describe, but that was a really big deal for them because they were able to make those digital crowds and battles look so real because you don't have a hundred characters doing the same exact thing. You've got a hundred characters all reacting to each other in different ways, just like it would with a real crowd of real people. Um, yeah. And it's, it's hard like for Sims. me to like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to explain that, but it, it makes sense. Like that's such a big deal. And obviously think about all the other movies since then that have probably used the same exact technology and made right. movies so much better. Yeah. The importance so cool. of pioneering technology. Yeah, they did a lot. So I that's that's kind of all I have for what a digital. I feel like I'm leaving out a lot, but we'll we'll also talk about them quite a bit when we get into the other movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, you have to mention Legolas's arrows. Those were digital. Oh yeah. Yeah, he wasn't like firing arrows at stunt doubles. Right. <laughs> and as so quick much as he was reloads and stuff, that's all. That's all digital arrows. Yeah. So much was digital, That's so cool. but I you would it. you would never know. I mean, even like I said, I didn't watch these movies when they came out. I watched them last year. That's a long right. time, twenty years later, or whatever. And yeah, and I I can pick out a couple things that I I know are CG, but for the most part, I can't tell. Agreed. I Very love it. Well done. I love it. Yeah. The next segment, so we have two little segments left. We're almost done. But the next one is about uh, camera tricks. And I didn't really know like where to put this. But it's so cool how they made the scale of all the characters work. So you've got Gandalf, who's very tall. You've got the elves who are tall. You've got Aragorn, who is a a human. You know, he's, he's... normal height and then you've got Mm -hmm. the dwarves that are a little bit shorter and then you've got the hobbits who are very short and yeah (laughs) they did such a good job yeah they're tiny they did such Mm -hmm. a good job at figuring out all the different camera tricks and ways to make that scale believable on camera so for close-ups and conversations with characters they would do forced perspective And Mm -hmm. one character would be closer to the camera. One would be further away to make them look like they were different sizes. Um, But like we mentioned a little bit earlier, they also had scale doubles. So uh, Gimli and all of the hobbits each had a scale double. And they had the same exact costume. And then in the case of the hobbits, they had these funny little masks that they would pull over their heads. And they would look like they're very scary because they don't move. (laughs) It's just a stagnant mask. But you can't tell because they only use them in like far away wide shots. Mm -hmm. So you just see like, oh, yeah, their nose and their silhouette of their face is the same. And they've got like, you know, the same color skin and they've got hair that is exactly the same. Um, Mm -hmm. But the scale doubles would wear those. And then um, can you remind me of the guy that plays Gimli, his scale double? Brett Beatty. Brett. So Brett had actual makeup 
put on just like um just like John Rice Davies did. So he didn't have a mask. Mm-hmm. He had like the actual facial prosthetics and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. He, I love and, stuff like that. And like when you think about like uh John Favreau's elf, like mm. almost all of that <laughs> yeah. was forced perspective. Yeah. It's so such a cool I love that stuff, like movie magic. Me too. Where it's just Will Ferrell sitting on a seat closer to the camera and everyone else is behind him, but they're all like the same height, but you can't yeah. tell because the angles. It's so yeah. awesome. Frodo in the cart, Gandalf that, up front. I was just going to say them. that's my favorite scene because to me that's the most mind-blowing. I can yeah. I can see how they could do those sorts of scenes if they're sitting at a table, but mm-hmm. that one where they're in the in like the wagon blows my mind yeah. every time. And the eye lines, getting the eye lines correct yeah is pretty crazy to me and when you think about that you have to think about all the multiple takes they have to do for the different versions you've got to film Mm -hmm. the forced perspective angle but then you've also got to cut to where the scale double jumps into gandalf's arms but then you got to cut to uh, frodo's face which is elijah wood and then you got to show the wagon with without um frodo in it and it's a regular wagon and then you cut to the wagon where you have the the force perspective deal and that's a ton of work for yeah one moment and think about how many moments there are where they had to do to do that it's insane it is insane so i don't have a ton written down for that i just think it's like really cool to note and i did want to mention kieran shaw is uh the scale double for frodo and he is delightful if you can ever watch the appendices you're gonna want to watch the scenes with him in it because he's so adorable and just very funny oh yeah he's he is a movie legend because i if i'm not mistaken his first movie was indiana jones oh yeah yeah you're right yeah Mm -hmm. he was in that he's in like literally everything that's cool i totally forgot about that he was in lord of the rings he was in i'm pretty sure he was in harry potter uh, mm-hmm. my favorite story was hit with him was the there's this one about uh he can't swim and he was in the boat with Vigo Mortensen. Oh my gosh! When they I were on the this river. Down. <laughs> Wait, I wrote this down and I forgot to tell it. You can tell the story. Yeah, and from what I remember, he pretty much said like, "Hey Vigo, if we if we go overboard, just save yourself because I can't swim." <laughs> Those boats, as beautiful as they are, are, are were pretty. You know, pretty tippy. They were kind of flimsy in a way. And because of the scale issue, it was uh, Kieran Shaw, you know, uh, was was Frodo. And I remember that the when we did the wide shot, we were really moving down that river. And Kieran, <laughs> we were doing the first take, and Kieran's going, Vigo, don't worry about me. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? I'm trying to talk without moving my lips. You know, cause <laughs> and he goes, well... If we flip over, I said, we're not going to flip over. And he goes, if we flip over, just save yourself. I can't swim. <laughs> I said, what? You know, you know, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> then I got really nervous. You know, like if someone's watching you're driving, you start overcoming. And I was like, every... Eddie now became fraught with, you know, possibility. And after that take, I said, you're kidding, right? And he goes, no, I'm even afraid to take a bath. <laughs> Jesus. I just realized I wrote all these notes in my 
in my yep. um, phone and I forgot some of them. That was one of them. The other thing I also wanted to mention that I forgot earlier, and I'll just stick it in here since I clearly forgot to mention it. Um, Galadriel's <laughs> eyes have different highlights than everybody else. And, you know, they wanted to make her look like extra ethereal and just, you know, mm-hmm. just I don't even know what the word is, but different so they used christmas lights and hung them in front of her face to make her eyes really sparkle rather than having like one highlight like regular eyes do yeah that's cool i didn't know that actually tying it all back in again we mentioned our friends tom and derek as the lugga beast in the Mm -hmm. force awakens on top of the lugga beast is tito and tito is played by kieran shaw oh yep that's so cool it's all there Kieran, wow. he's the thread behind all of it. Wow. He is in yep. everything. I'm looking yeah, through my everything. notes again to make sure I didn't miss anything else. I think I got everything. I think that was just the one that I missed, the Galadriel thing and then the boat. But I'm going to cut that part in the of the appendices into this yeah. podcast because it's <laughs> so funny. So we'll just move on because awesome. you guys have probably already heard that by now. Um, right. The next section <laughs> is music and sound effects. I told Brian before we started recording, I said, I don't even know what to say about this because I'm not an expert in music. But right before we got on the call today, I found this really very well done um, fan made documentary about the music of the Lord of the Rings. And Mm -hmm. I'll link that in our show notes here. It's just on YouTube. And I only got to watch a few minutes of it, so I didn't get very into it. But I, I wanted to share something that I thought was really interesting. And the guy said that um, Howard Shore, who was the composer for the music mm-hmm. and created all these lovely themes, he um, was talking about all the little tidbits within different themes and how they tied in with the stories. And one of the facts that he shared was for the motif of the fellowship theme, there are nine notes And that represents the nine um, characters of the fellowship. And I'm just like, that is so cool. Like so much thought goes into it. And I don't know anything about music. I can't play it. I can't read it. But I just know that the soundtrack of these movies are the best it can be. Like it's just so good. And the songs are so well done and I've said this before, they just like make you feel warm inside. You know, it's, I've only been into this franchise for a year now, but they're already very recognizable to me. And I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but they're just like perfect. It's, uh, 
it's a transcendent sort of thing. It's like um, I have a personal connection to it because uh, my my really close mentor that passed away a few years ago, uh, he was also obsessed with Lord of the Rings. That's one of the many things we connected on. And mm-hmm. they actually played uh, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack at his funeral. Wow. So I have that extra level of like uh, hearing the opening theme to Lord of the Rings uh, gets me real emotional for a lot of reasons. Like it did before. Now it definitely yeah. does. But there is there is something about it. There's, there's yeah. I don't know what that is. Like it's more than music. It's like a feeling. It's but also it's such a big part of my childhood as well. Mm-hmm. So it's so wrapped up, which we mentioned before that like these movies are very responsible for who I am. And mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah. The music of Lord of the Rings, it's something else. Like, I can't even explain it. Because Star Wars, you have, like, themes. And mm-hmm. you have, like, okay, this is for that, this is for that. But Lord of the Rings, it's like, oh, it just is. This isn't a theme yeah. that we're necessarily... I mean, it is a theme that there they're are attaching themes, to something. but you don't think of it in that way. Yeah. It's not as, like... I don't know. It doesn't feel as deliberate as it is, if that yeah. makes sense. It's just so natural because it goes with yeah. the story so well. Yeah, it's like, it's just back, it's not a, like, when Darth Vader walks into a room, you hear his theme song, it's now announcing Darth Vader's in the room, whereas Mm -hmm. with Lord of the Rings, it's just background music for everything else that you're seeing. It's that extra level that of cohesiveness. I'm bad at Mm -hmm. words, so I'm not explaining it correctly, but I think you know what I mean. Well, it's hard to talk about, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about the music to be able to describe what you feel. Um, Yeah. But I agree with you, it's just so natural. It's something else. It just is. I think that's the perfect way, like you said, it just is. And I would love to watch these movies with all the dialogue, but with no music. Because I think it would greatly impact the viewing and you'd really appreciate the music more than you already do. And one thing that I've done a lot lately is I just, I bought all the soundtracks and I just listened to the soundtracks by themselves oh yeah and oh man they're just so i did good. that for years i had them on yeah. cds with the star wars mm. soundtracks and we would just flip them back and forth that's so cute. it's nuts i know i know uh david w collins did a mm. lord of the Rings series on the music of lord of the Rings. Oh. so definitely definitely check those out for anyone that hasn't oh i'll and, you know, definitely listen like to that the best of now the best when it comes this. to anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny yeah. like i love how you have your own personal connection with the music and i know everybody yeah. does and my connection with this, and I may have mentioned this in our last episode, but I started watching these movies at the height of the coronavirus, like when it was starting. And I yep. was like very unsure about a lot of things and worried. And watching these movies gave me a chance to like turn that part of my brain off and just relax. Yeah. And the the Shire theme specifically is oh, so yeah. like comforting to me. It just It just feels like you're getting a giant hug, you know? Yeah, agreed. I, there's like no other way for me to describe it other than a, just a nice, relaxing, calming embrace, you know? Oh, it's and true. And I just think that's so cool. I agree. Monique and I talk about every time we watch, because we watch these movies a lot. That's why I'm so glad that you've discovered this in the last year. Yeah. Because we, wa- we watch these movies probably once a month for years. We just pick wow. one, always extended, because we just love them. And the Shire theme specifically fellowship of the ring it feels like home because we both are so connected to it it's just ah it's so good it's so good and just howard shore gets it he speaks the language of music and like the even the emotional bits like the the chorus the the one woman's voice that like that specific note that she hits 
mm-hmm. like right after Gandalf falls or mm-hmm. any sort of deep emotional moment. Like, I don't know what that note is. It's an emotional note. That's what it mm-hmm. is. You hear it and you're like, I'm going to I'm gonna have a good cry right now. Yeah. I'll see you in five Seriously. minutes. Uh, there were so many moments when I cried, especially the first time I watched it. Yeah. But, yeah. The, mu- <laughs> the music is great. The sound effects are also great. I think yep. this is something that I would love to do an entirely separate episode on. We should have Christina on to talk about the sound effects, honestly. Oh, um, that's a good idea. How, you know, and we can kind of all do a little bit of research on how, you know, the sound effects were made and stuff like that. But yes. um, that's kind of all I had written for all of this. I have one right. fun fact to share at the end. Okay. I, it just like made my day when I realized this. Brian, you already know this fact because I was too excited to keep it from you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, for those of you who listen to the Dorky Diva show, you've probably heard me tell a story one time about the the first Star Wars actor that I ever met was Jay Lagaya, who plays um, Captain Typho mm-hmm. in the prequels. And he's just a lovely person. He was so nice when I met him. And he's from New Zealand. And I had watched the appendices like probably 10 times before we decided to do this podcast. And I never realized until this time around that he was like the MC for the Wellington uh, New Zealand premiere of the, the Fellowship of the Ring. And I was like, that's Jay Lagaya. So right. anyways, there's a fun fact for Another you Star connection. Wars fans. Yeah. I, I love it. That was really cool. So I agree. Whew, we did it. We did it. Look at kind you. Of. Your dissertation is complete. Yeah, well, for part yeah, one. this is just the beginning. <laughs> That's right. We got two more. <laughs> it's so fun, though, to learn about all these things. And I just really appreciate yeah. everything that these people have done for these movies. And like I said Agreed. earlier, so many of these people get no credit for their work. A lot of the mm-hmm. work you don't even fully see on screen. Yep. But they're still doing it. It still makes a difference. It's so Absolutely. important. I love it. I agree. Do you feel like you learned a lot or was a lot of this stuff I you learned a knew? ton. Yeah. Hmm. I love this stuff. Anything anything Lord of the Rings, just count me in. Just count nice. me in. Well, I'm glad I was able to teach you some things. That's right. That's right. You've you've reached into the layers that I haven't. I was mm-hmm. like, "Okay, that's interesting. Like who'd have thought? I had no idea the chainmail was made of pipes. That's crazy." Yeah. PVC pipes, 2.2.5 million. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Um, that's so that's nuts. it for this episode of second podcast. This was so yeah. much fun. Congratulations. We, oh, you survived. Everybody, you guys did it. <laughs> um, we'll be back in two weeks to talk about the two towers. We'll be talking about Ooh. the movie first and then another episode just like this on behind the scenes. We have a special guest joining us uh, to yeah, talk about the two do. towers. He's a very good friend of ours and we're really excited to have him on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just pumped. Brian, do you have a sign off for this? I still I still can't remember if we decided it or not. Uh, uh no, we didn't officially decide cuz we were too busy laughing. Um mm-hmm. but I think I'm just going to go with Fly you fools. And I don't have one, so I'll just say thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.